Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, this is new. This is different. We are trying out a new podcast style called Ask Katie Anything. I don't know why. Whenever I think of music and it's like only in my head, it comes out like a club song. I don't even go to clubs. I'm not really sure. But we thought this would be kind of a fun, and I'm saying weeks, it's like Sean and I, but we thought this would be a fun way to do more of what you're already wanting me to do, which is kind of answer questions. And so I asked you on my YouTube community tab to send some in. And we're just going to get through them. We're going to talk it out. I don't know if I'll stay on topic 100% of the time, but I will do my best. Um, and you had a lot. I think I had like 310 questions or something. So I, I pulled about 20. I don't know if we'll get through all of those. We're just going to jump into them. Talk about it. Be honest, you know. And let me know in the comments like if you have other questions or if you like this or all those things. You know, do the things. Um and make sure your uh, notifications are turned on, too, because now we have two podcasts. Woo! -woo. So you want to make sure if there's one you want to listen to that you know when it goes up, because we're still trying to sort out all that stuff. Um, also, if you don't know who I am, my name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I have a YouTube channel where I've been talking about mental health stuff for like eight years. Crazy, but it's been really wonderful. And so this is just yet another way to reach people break down the stigma associated with mental illness and getting help and, you know, answer some of your questions. Okay. Without further ado, that's enough rambling from me. Um, let's get into it. So the first question we're and we're just starting off. You're going to kind of laugh them. We're starting off really light talking about suicide, but Hey, I'm just going to jump in. This is, this is how it is. Just jump right in. The question is, Katie, have you ever lost a client to suicide? If so, how did that make you feel? Now, the, the truth is I haven't. And I kind of want to, I'm knocking on wood because I really don't want that to ever happen. I have had, I've lost clients. And I know that that, you're like, wait, but I specialize in eating disorder treatment. And so I have had clients pass away um, from heart attack. That's actually the only way I've lost a client before. Um, and I was sad. I mean, I'm a human too, right? There, there's no real surprise there. It was really difficult. Um, it was when I worked in the eating disorder treatment center and the client left, uh, they call it leaving AMA, like against medical advice. So you're like, just leave before we believe you're done with treatment. Um, and this patient was really ill and she was older. She was, I mean, not old, but older. She, I think she was like 42. Um, and she left AMA and, uh, passed away of a heart attack a few months after that. And so that was really hard for all of us. And, you know, because we get into what we do to help people, I think it's really tricky when you, when you aren't able to help someone because they're not ready. And I've said this over and over again on my channel, but you can never make someone want to get better. And I learned that lesson right away because at the time when this happened, I was still in graduate school. So it was like my first year of working. So I guess there's like, here it is, this is what it is get used to it. Um, but it's really sad. And yeah, it's, it's always hard to lose a, a patient. Question number two, when can therapy be more harmful, harmful than beneficial? I love this question because I think that there's something, um, I like that someone asks this because people often think you should be in therapy forever. And that is not the goal. The goal is actually to better understand yourself, gain some tools and insights and growth from being in therapy and then you don't need it anymore because you got all these tools and things and so I think that you know being in therapy when it's not actually helping you do those things grow get tools feel better that's when it 
I wouldn't even know. I wouldn't even say it's harmful, but it's just not beneficial. It's a waste of your time and money. And I don't mean that to say that like, oh, therapy is such a waste. If you're just chatting like friends and catching up, that's not therapy. You can do that over a glass of wine with your friends or, you know, at home hanging out. You don't need to pay somebody for that. And so I don't really think that therapy can ever be harmful, but it can not be beneficial. And if you're finding that therapy isn't making things better for you, you end up feeling way worse or you aren't moving forward or you feel like you've reached your goals and your therapist isn't like stopping the therapy, you should say something and you should stop. And that's kind of, there's so much to talk about with this. So when you're in therapy, I am a firm believer in the fact that we should all have treatment goals. We should be working with a treatment plan. And that doesn't mean that it's like super rigid, And we have to talk to them every week about how we're moving towards our goals and working on our plan and all that stuff. That's not what I mean. What I mean is we should talk together about the goals of therapy and work backwards from those larger goals so that we're tracking towards the thing that we want, right? If I go into therapy because I'm struggling with panic attacks, let's say, and I tell my therapist, my goal is to not have those anymore. That makes sense, right? Totally reasonable. Then... I'd want her to, or him or her, my therapist is a she, so that's why I was saying her, um, to work backwards from that big goal with me. And then every few months or so, let's say three or four months, um, we go over how we're progressing towards that goal so that I know therapy is beneficial. That also allows my therapist to check in with me and make sure that we're still on the same page and we're still working together. You know, there's a lot of things that I think need to happen and that's why treatment plans have to exist. And so if you're not working like I don't have a treatment plan or kind of if you don't feel like your therapist is checking in with you, you don't feel like you're making progress, then I don't think it's beneficial anymore. And I think you should probably stop, but it can be, and sorry, I'm just talking this out. It's just on the fly. We're just, you're just getting all my thoughts is I guess it could be harmful if the therapist is bad at their job, meaning, um, let's say you just don't click with them. You don't feel like you can trust them. Maybe they fall asleep in session. I've heard from people that this can happen. I know you're like, holy shit, but that is the truth. I've People have had them fall asleep. It's horrible. Um, if they don't remember your name or important people in your life, we have notepads and pens and paper or computers for a reason, like take some notes for God's sake. So you don't forget that. Um, so there's that. And then, you know, obviously also they should never be trying to have sex with you. Uh, that's not part of therapy. It's actually really against the law as it should be, Um, at least in the States. I learned recently, and we need to change this. Holy shit, you guys. But apparently, as long as you're old enough to give consent in the UK, it's not illegal for a therapist to have sex with their patient. And I think that is totally, it's ass back. was so wrong. It's just so wrong. This has to stop. And uh, we're still trying to figure out how to do that because I'm not from the, you know, I'm not in the UK. You, those of you in the UK, let's try to make some change because that's messed up. Um, so anything that's like bad therapy, like even in my, my book, I had a book that came out last December called, are you okay? A guide to caring for your mental health. And I talk about signs that you're seeing a good therapist and bad therapist. Um, and I have videos about those too. If you have a bad therapist that you end up feeling worse all the time, they don't remember your name or important things. Um, they cancel all the time. Uh, you don't work with a treatment plan or anything, you don't feel like you can trust them, any of those signs, that's actually not beneficial therapy. That could be potentially harmful. Okay, I can talk about that forever, but let's move on to question number three. Um, and that is, do you ever get frustrated with clients not making progress? And how do you address that issue? Uh, the The short answer is sometimes I get frustrated. It's not in the same way. I, I think people... First of all, people have a lot of assumptions about therapists and therapy and frustrating, like feeling frustrated as a therapist is different than feeling frustrated with people in life. I know that's hard to understand and that sounds crazy, but it's just a different type of relationship. And my frustration in my therapy practice with a patient is more along the lines of I feel for them. Like I know they can do better. I know that, that they, they're recognizing what they're doing and they're just not putting in that extra effort to, to stop doing the bad thing for it. You know what I mean? That's, I know it's a bad example, but it's like, let's say we're trying to manage addiction and, um, alcoholism is their drug of choice. And so 
they know better. They have all the tools. They have a sponsor. They've got me and they're choosing to go on these benders and, and not, I don't even know if it's choosing. I don't mean to say it that way. What I really mean is it's like they're doing the bad behavior anyways. And I know that their intuition is telling them not to, and they have all these tools and they're not even using them. I'm like, you got this. Come on. We've been working. Like that's the frustration is more like, I know you can do this and and they're not. And so it's not like the same as in life when you get like annoyed and frustrated kind of means like I'm irritated. It's not really that it's more like we've been working so hard, like use the things it could really help. And I, I, so that's kind of how it plays out in therapy. And so I have been frustrated over the years with clients not making progress. Um, but I think there's also this component to being a therapist where you kind of assess whether it's it's you, like am I doing my work? Because there's this like ebb and, not ebb and flow, but give and take in therapy. Where as the therapist, I don't want to work harder than my patients, but I don't want to work less hard than they are. So we have to like meet together, both working, you know, the same amount of effort together if that makes sense. And it's a, it's a tricky dance, right? Cause I want to make sure that I'm doing all my research and coming to the table with like tools, techniques, uh, good questions to get them to think about what they're doing and why and all of that. And so I'm going to do all my work on that side and come to meet them there, but then they have to come and meet me where they're able to listen and work within reason to, to integrate that information into their life to help them feel better. Right. And we know that's, we all know therapy is really hard. It's hard work. So I'm not saying like, oh, it's instantaneous. I bring in the things and they do them, but there has to be like this kind of meeting. And so I don't really want to be not arriving with all that information. And also I don't want to be working harder than them. And the reason that in therapy, your therapist doesn't want to work harder than you is because I can't make you get better. And that's just like an effort and fertility. Like I'm just going to try to do this thing for you and I'm going to keep trying, but it's not going to make any impact because you're the one that has to actually try not me. It's not me. It's you. And so, um, so yeah, I think that's something. And so, okay, to move on to the second portion of this question, it says, how do you address that issue? So if I ever get frustrated with clients not making progress, I do, because I know sometimes they have the tools and they're just not using them. But then how do I address it? Is I just talk about it. I think that's the thing about, um, my style of therapy, and this could be different from other people. And that's fair. Everybody's going to find the therapist that fits best for them. But something that I try to do in therapy is bring things up right away. Like if it's been a couple of months, and I can see they're kind of slowly sliding back into old habits, I'll just say it out loud. I'll be like, I feel like you're sliding back into old habits. And I'm just curious if you've noticed that. And if you have any thoughts about, you know, what could be causing that, that would be kind of how I'd frame it. So we can look into maybe triggers, or, uh, you know, any faulty beliefs that they're acting out of or certain thoughts they're having about their recovery or their treatment. Um, I just address it. I find honestly that clear, direct communication is just the best. It's the best in life in general. It's the best in our relationships, in our life. It's the best with our therapy, with our therapist and our therapeutic relationship. It's best at work. If, if we can get over the hurdle of what if they don't like, what if this, oh, they're going to think I'm this way. They're going to think about that, that about me, all the ego, all the, the worry about what people are, you know, going to think about us. If we can get over that hurdle and communicate, it's never as bad as we think it is. And so in therapy, I try to practice that with my patients where we just talk about it. And if they're not making progress because it's my fault, let's say I don't have all the tools and tips and tricks and things for them, then I might try to refer them to someone else because that's on me. And that's part of being like a responsible therapist is I'm not going to continue to see them when I am not the best person for the job. I don't have any ego about my practice. I don't think I'm the end all be all. I don't know everything. I don't specialize in everything and I might not be a good fit for everyone. And so if we're not making progress and you know, we talk about it and they're really working hard and I'm like, man, maybe I, you know, like, I don't specialize in trauma, for instance, or addiction. Um, my specializations are self-injury and eating disorders. Um, and also, like, I do a lot of anxiety work because uh, just my trainings. Anyway, so I do those types of things. So if things fall out of my specialization and I find that they're not doing as well, then I'll offer some referrals or supplements. Like, oh, there's this group or there's this specialist you could, tr- you know, try seeing every other week so they can add in these things. We can do all sorts of things. I know that was a long-winded answer, but... 
there's just a lot to say about it. Therapy's complicated. Mainly because life is complicated. Am I right? Okay. Question number four. How are we doing? I think we're doing okay. I'm moving through these, right? Am I making sense? I'm hope, I hope I'm making sense. Um, it's funny because I'm used to like having these, even if I'm answering questions, usually on live stream. So I'm used to getting some kind of feedback in the chat or something. And I'm finding myself, since this is my first time doing it, I'm like, where's that chat? Like, what's happening? What do people, did that make sense? Are you following? Am I all over the place? All those things are possible. Okay. But anywho, let's get into question number four. I am not sure if this has been asked before, but what is the process for clients if a therapist dies? I feel like it would be very traumatic and a setback. This is a great question. And unfortunately, I haven't had a colleague of mine that's a therapist pass away, but I have had a psychiatrist that I've worked with pass away. And it was very sudden. Um, Honestly, as horrible as this is to even talk about, he passed away at the doctor's office getting a stress test because he was having issues with his heart. It was devastating. I'm still like, how did that even happen? Um, anyways, and so I, uh, I had to deal, um, we didn't share a ton of clients, but it was, it was shocking for me. It was hard for me. And so I think, um, the process itself is actually just referrals. So once, um, once we find out they've passed away, someone either, their office manager, if they're lucky enough to have one or a colleague of theirs that shares the office, um, you know, we'll try to figure out a way to, to contact their patients. The thing that gets a little tricky here is, uh, HIPAA and confidentiality, because if, if I'm not like my office manager or assistant that I don't have, by the way, my private practice is just me. But if I had that person, they would already understand, you know, confidentiality requirements to be part of my office and they would call everybody to like refer them to someone else. I don't know if someone does pass away. If I think what would happen and this, I'm just guessing because of confidentiality, if they don't have an office manager or assistant or anything like that, it would be, on their voicemail, someone would change their voicemail or their email automatic return. You know, we do those types of things on this end because that wouldn't be, uh, you know, it wouldn't infringe upon your rights as a patient because confidentiality is something that is very, it's a very serious topic. It's, it's has legal ramifications. Like for instance, if I see you out in public and you're my patient, I can't come up to you and say hi and be like, oh, how are you? Or wave or anything. I have to pretend I don't know you. You can approach me because it's you hold the confidentiality. It's yours. It's your privacy. So you can come up to me and be like, hey, Katie, because think about it. If I came up to you and you're with some friends and they don't know you're in therapy or you're not comfortable with that or any number of things. And I'm like, hey, Susie, how's it going? And you're like, oh, my God. And then you, you look shocked. I walk away and your friend's like, oh, who was that? You have to answer that. That's messed up because they you shouldn't be forced because of me to share things you don't want to share. Um, so I think with like, and there's a lot of other things when it comes to confidentiality, but I think with regard to a therapist passing away, I think it would be on the voicemail and the email um, and then they, that's how they'd hope you'd find out. But that's an interesting question. And I might follow up with this and ask some of my colleagues because yeah, the only like that, that psychiatrist that passed away, he had a whole office staff. And so they managed it. Um, but yeah, there's, it's, it's all about that confidentiality, man. It's a little tricky and it would be very traumatic and a setback. And, um, when that happened to that psychiatrist, a lot of, um, a lot of the therapists he worked with, we did a lot of like debriefing on it for ourselves, like a, kind of like group therapy so that we were more prepared to see our patients because it could be really hard. Some of them had been seeing him for years and years. And so it was really difficult. Okay. But yeah, I'll follow up with that. That's interesting. I have to ask, um, my law and ethics person that's really good at that, those kinds of questions. Okay. Question number five, and I'm going to get a drink of water. Okay. Um, Total side note, because my brain just went there. And I might do a video about this. I'm not sure. But have you guys heard about this, like, dry fasting people are doing? Don't listen to it if you've heard about it. it they're not drinking water. What is happening? So stupid. So let's jump into question number five. And that is, 
how to access, this is a big question, by the way, this is, this could be an entire podcast and an entire video, how to access and fix unconscious negative beliefs that have formed in early childhood and strengthened during growing up. Now, we all have these. I know it sucks. I'm sorry. And the word unconscious, I think a lot of people think like, well, you're not even aware of it. And you, you really aren't. But when you're in therapy and you're questioned about it, you're like, oh my God, like I've had so many of those moments in therapy where my therapist will be, uh, what, what I would, uh, she's not a CBT or cognitive behavioral therapist. However, she does use some of the techniques as many of us do. I do that, but it's called downward arrow questioning where you're like, okay, if that's true, then, then what? And if that's true, then what? And you kind of are, you're trying to get down to what this person's asking about these like core negative beliefs or like what I would call a faulty belief, meaning not true. And it's just constructed in our brain because something shitty happened when we were younger. Um, so you try to get down to figure out what that belief is. And then once we know that, then we can work to change it. And so how to access it, I think is, hmm, I mean, therapy is the best because you can, then you don't have to like try to figure it out on your own because I actually don't know if we could do that ourselves. Like if, if I could be aware enough of my own shit to ask myself the right questions, do you know what I mean? Like, that's a lot. Like even just thinking about that, I'm like, man, that would be exhausting. Like, and we all know how easy it is to like distract and use unhealthy coping skills and do all the things that we've always been doing um, to keep ourselves away from recognizing that fault, that negative or faulty belief. So I think therapy be my number one answer. CBT therapy would be the best. And I know people always are like, you say CBT therapy and it's like saying therapy, therapy, but it's just, it's just the way I say it. Get over it. Um, and so I think Therapy is the one thing. And then another thing that we could do is honestly just journaling and then looking back on those journals and looking for patterns. For instance, if let's say I'm keeping a journal for, I don't know, once a week for a year, I don't know, throwing something out there, whatever, whatever works for you. Maybe once a day you do like a bullet journal. Good for you, whatever. Um, then I'm able to go back and look at that journal and be like, man, it seems like I have a lot of self-doubt when it comes to, I don't know. Uh, my role in relationships, I always tend to I'm noticing this pattern where I tend to over apologize. And I tend to think that any dis disagreement or argument is my fault. Let's say you because that's something that I struggle with is I'll over apologize. And I always think things are my fault. Um, so let's say you recognize that you could in your own mind, I don't know if you'd be able to answer it because it can be difficult. But you could think like, well, where would that come from? Like if I, when I was younger, if I go back there, like, was I ever told that? Did anybody treat me that way? Was there some kind of dynamic in my family where it was like not okay for, for kids or men or women, whatever, uh, to speak up or to be heard or to be confident? I mean, just start thinking about it, letting your brain go back in history and be like, hmm, no, I mean, maybe not. And then you can even ask your siblings or your parents if you have a good relationship with them. You can be like, hey, I'm noticing that I like do this a lot. Do you do this a lot? Because that can tell you something too. Like in a lot of ways, my brother and I are very much alike. But there are certain things that he like we're almost four years apart in age. And there are certain things that like I don't remember that he remembers that have like shaped him in many ways that I'm not shaped by. Does that make sense? But it can help to check in because then he might say, well, I do do that a lot. And then you can have a conversation about that and they might be able to help you uncover more of the reasons why. Because to get back, I told you this is like a, this is an intense question. Then the, to fix it is once we know, let's say we drill down with our therapist and we get to the, like, because these core beliefs that I'm talking about aren't just things like, uh, I'm always at fault. These are things like, I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I'm not enough. These are big sweeping. Think of them as these huge generalizations about who we are and how we show up for ourselves and people and that we're in relationships with. These are huge beliefs that like, I think of it as like a, like a colored fog we walk into. Do you know, like it, like a scary, I don't know, you know, like one of those, why can't I think of the word, but like a, 
a haunted house of sorts where it's like that smoke, you know, the, I don't know if it's dry ice or whatever the fuck it is, but it's like different colors and it like invades it like colors our whole life. So we can't see things clearly and we can't even, you know, navigate through life easily. That's what these beliefs do. They fill up our life. I don't know. I love that analogy. And I don't know if you guys like it. I love analogies period. And that one's just really, I like things that I like can almost touch. Like it feels really tangible. And that's what faulty core beliefs are. Um, they're like big colored fog that makes it hard for us to see properly and get around. And so once we realize what that core belief is, let's say mine, because I over apologize, is probably something to the effect of like, I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy. And I've worked on this in therapy for a long time. And that's why I can like pick that out kind of easily is like, I know that that's something I struggle with. It's like, I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. Um, And so once I recognize what that faulty belief is, then I have to be a detective to find evidence that does not support it. Meaning I'm going to look out into my world because I'm going to start clearing the fog, right? I'm going to open a little window. I'm going to look out into the world and I'm going to look for things that don't support that. Meaning uh, uh, I'm going to, look at my relationship with Sean, with my husband and notice how, how well our dynamic is. I'm gonna look at my friendships. I'm going to look at how I show up for people and things that I do and ways that I've been successful and ways that I've, uh, been dedicated and, and I'm going to, in a way, show and prove my worth. Now, this is really fucking hard because if you think about it, you believe that that's not true already. So then you're going to go onto the world and you're going to try to find stuff. And the whole time you're going to be like, nope, 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 nope. And that's why a therapist is the best. But if, if you're like strong mind and you're stubborn like I am, you can sometimes fight against that and be like, no, no, no. This actually doesn't support that belief because remember that time that person thanked me for showing up for them. Think of all the small things you've done and how many people have said like, oh, that meant a lot to me. Thanks for sending that card or that text or that email or picking me up from the airport. Or it could be any number of things. You look for all that evidence that shows that you are worthy of love. You are enough. You show up for people. You're a good person. We can start going against that faulty belief because they are really strong. We can be acting out of those for years and years and years and not even recognize it. And that, so anyways, I know that's a lot. It's a lot of things to think about, but it can change your life. And I think that's why it's important to, to take some time to recognize the thoughts that we have and challenge them sometimes because they're not always right or correct or true in any form. And we've been acting out of uh, what eight-year-old us encountered instead of what 36-year-old today us is dealing with. And so it's good to check in. It's hard work, but I feel like, and not to make it sound like, oh, therapy should last forever, because like I said, it shouldn't. But I do think there's always some work to be done where, like, I'll give you an example. So I've been in therapy off and on since I was like 15 years old. And I'm I'm not currently in therapy right now. But my therapist, last time I saw her, was like, you need to, and she didn't say this directly because as you know, therapists, they talk around until we figure it out. And then we're like, oh my God. So she said, um, you know, all of this worry that you're having about, um, I was talking about somebody that doesn't like me and like, is just really mean. And she was like, you're so worried about that person, but you can only control your side of the street. You only can clean up the mess that you've made. And she's like, I get the feeling that in your life, you try to clean up other people's messes a lot. And I was like, fuck my life. Oh my God. You know, my head exploded. And so part of my homework as a whole that I still try to do is to not take on projects and as a relationship, which I've been trying to not do that for a long time. But the bigger one, and this sounds silly, but I don't know if any of you can, you know, understand this or commiserate with me is that I will be afraid. I'll like feel bad for being in a stranger's way when we're trying to do the exact same thing. Like if I'm at Trader Joe's getting groceries and someone else needs to get broccoli and I'm reaching for broccoli, I'm like, Oh, excuse me. Oh, sorry. I let them go first. Not that you can't let people go first. You can totally be kind and stuff like that, but I'll have this like, Ooh, Ooh, like my bad. I shouldn't even be here. Why do I exist? I can't believe I'm taking up space. Oh, 
it's like such an automatic response, but it's me acting out of that. Like I'm not worthy. I I'm not enough. Like what, why am I here? I'm just in your way. I'm just always an inconvenience. And so that's something that I'm supposed to be working on is like being okay, taking up space, even if that means I'm in someone else's way. And so anyway, I say all of that to say that it takes time. You always, there's going to be a new way that it kind of tries to show itself these faulty beliefs. But if we know it, like I've named it, I've seen it. And, um, I did this video like a couple years ago with uh, a friend of mine, Lindsay Sterling. She also has a YouTube channel and she's an amazing um, musician. And she was talking about her eating disorder and how it can put on a different wig and a different outfit, but she still knows what it is when it tries to show up. And that's how I feel about faulty beliefs is they like put on a different costume, but when they walk back into your life, you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I still know who you are and you're not invited. And so it's something that I'm constantly challenging myself to like test and make sure that, you know, I'm not doing that because I still do it. So it's one moment at a time. Once you recognize what it is, that's honestly the hardest part, I think, but it's such a like freeing feeling when you're like, holy fuck. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like a, your head explodes. So once you recognize that, then you can start challenging it and seeing how it shows itself in other parts of your life. Okay, that was a very long-winded answer, but it's a great question and something that I think we all struggle with because we all have those. Even if we don't think we do, we do. They might just not be as debilitating as others. I don't know, you know. Hmm. Okay, it's another sip of water. And we're going to get into question number six. Okay, and that is, how can you open up and talk about your feelings if all you feel is numbness. For me, I don't know how to describe my emotions. What do you think this means? Thank you. Okay, <laughs> this, I, I picked this question and put it at the front because I think it's something that's super, super common. Also, within um, the YouTube community tab, you guys can thumbs up things. And when I saw things that got a lot of like upvotes is what I would call that. The ones that got the most upvotes went to the top of the list. So that they, you know, it's ensured that I'll talk about them. Um, so anyway, the, this is something that everybody struggles with. And when I was writing my book, oh God, I'm like, it says 2020. And I was writing it in 2018. I had asked, I'd reached out to like my mom and one of my friends and I had Sean do it. And, um, I had them try to, at the end of their day, name three to five emotions and write a short sentence about how that emotion felt and then send it to me because I was going to add it into the book. I don't even think we ended up adding that in. I, I'd have to look back, but I don't think we ended up actually putting that in. But I wanted it in people's handwriting. And that was something that was important to me. And my editor agreed and blah, 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 blah. So I had everybody give those to me. And <laughs> it was, it's so funny because one of my close friends who's in therapy at the time, like twice a week was like, boom, she got it to me like the next day. She's like, this is what you need. I got it. Here it is. And then my mom's boyfriend, Larry, of all things. And he's been in therapy off and on, you know, as we all are. He got it over to me. But then my mom had such a tough time. And so did Sean, like coming up with these things. And my mom particularly was like, what do you even mean by this? (laughs) And I don't mean to laugh. I'm not laughing at her. I'm laughing with her because then I had to do it myself. And I was like, well, I'm going to try to do it because why is this so difficult for her? Like that, what? And so I tried to do it guess what? It's really fucking hard. I was like, wow, because it's, it's not, we can't live in emotion mind all the time, right? I can't live in that space where I'm just feeling everything. I mean, some people do. It doesn't work for me is what I should say. Some people are like, I have a couple of friends that are super in touch with their emotions, how they're feeling. They express them right away. They like, just like love it. I am like, I have to focus on work for a while. And like in the, when I'm in my car driving somewhere, I can really tap into that emotion mind. Or when I'm with a friend and we're talking about a tough thing or something I'm trying to process, I can jump into that. If you know, there are certain times I can jump into emotion mind, but I can't live in it. And so for many of us, I think it's been years or even our entire lives since we've touched into emotion mind. And so, sorry guys, I'm very long winded. That's why I like podcasts because we can just chitty chat and I can tell you all the things that are coming to my mind without feeling like, I got to cram it into like 10 minutes or something um, for a video. Okay. So how do we open up and talk about our feelings if all we feel is numbness? I would start there because there's numbness is not nothing. 
Numbness is something. And I would like you to write numbness down as what you feel. And then I'd like you to tell me what it feels like. Does it feel hazy, heavy, light, checked out, checked in? I don't know. Start thinking about it. What does numbness feel like? Use it in a sentence using other words other than numbness. So, you know, if you write down the emotion is numbness, then below it, write down like it feels like I'm in a fog or uh, it feels life feels slower. My thoughts won't come to me. I don't know. Think about it. What does it feel like for you? Everybody's different. And if you can, you can use your five. If you like are struggling to come up with things to put in there for that sentence, you can try the five senses. So what, you know, what does it look like? What does it taste like? All that stuff. If you want, if that's helpful. Um, or how does it feel in your body? Like muscle tension, stuff like that. That's like, you know, touch. So anyways, start there. And what I really think this means, because the person says for me, I don't know how to even describe my emotions. What do you think this means? I think it just means it's been a long, long time, maybe your whole life since you've actually tapped into how you feel. And that's okay. I think a lot of us are there. And that doesn't mean, oh, I'm so stunted or, oh, I'm never going to get anywhere in therapy. No, don't let those negative thoughts take over. The truth is, you're going to have to learn a new skill. And we don't have that muscle yet. We don't have that skill built. It's just going to take a little while to build it up. And that's completely okay. That's why you have therapists, friends, family, supportive people in your life, whoever it is. Um, And you have your journal. Pick up a journal. I even sell one. I love it. On the front of it, it's embossed. It says getting my shit together. It's one of my, it's actually my favorite piece of merch that I've ever created. And I think because it's honest. So my plan for 2020 is to come up with more honest merch that I want to use because I have one of those journals myself and I love it. So get your journal and start writing down the things that you feel numbness. You can even print out one of those feelings charts and start like picking things that just resonate with you. Like, ah, that word. Yeah, that sounds it. That sounds like me. Mm -hmm. I like that. Start with one build up after a week of doing one every day, maybe try to do two and you'll get there. It's a new muscle. We haven't worked it in a while. So you got to be patient with yourself. Okay. Um, yeah. So it doesn't mean anything bad. It's actually just something I think we all struggle with. Okay. Let's get into our next question. Um, but always feel free in the comments if you want to send follow-ups like, Hey, I liked what you said about that. Or, Hey, that didn't make any sense. Katie, you're talking jibber jabber. That's all fine. Let me know in the comments if uh, this is on YouTube. If you're listening, you can hop over to YouTube later maybe and leave a comment. Um, but know that I'm open to following up on these things. If you have more questions, if I didn't quite answer it the way that you were hoping, you can always ask more. Um, this is Ask Katie anything, a.k.a. We get into it. It's totally fine. That's the whole goal of this, okay? Now, question number seven, my favorite number, number seven, is... What made you want to become a therapist? Now, I get asked this all the time, and I don't actually think I've made a video about it. Maybe I should just do a a video where I just talk about it, like totally unprepared, unscripted, just roll off the cuff. Sometimes those are fun. That's like my old FAQ videos from back in the day. I really enjoyed doing those. Um, But the truth about becoming a therapist is it wasn't, there's quite a few things along the way that like pushed me in that direction. However, right before graduate school, something interesting happened. And I thought about going in a whole other direction. But let me take you back, back in time, back into high school. I actually middle school, even I'll take it back even further in middle school. I, I don't know why I remember, I think I was in seventh grade. I remember feeling super proud of the fact that I was a great secret keeper. I loved being a vault for information knowing that if someone said something to me that I would keep it, you know, I would never share that with anybody locked up, throw away the key. And I, so I enjoyed being that and enjoyed people telling me the, the their stories and secrets and thoughts. And so that was like a pivotal moment for some reason. I remember being like, I'm so proud of myself and I like this. I enjoy these conversations. I like being part of this and I'm good at it and not being a therapist, being a secret keeper. 
And then in high school, um, they opened up a psych 101 class. It was just like introduction to psychology and um, a lot of like, at this time, I think I was a sophomore, maybe a junior in uh, high school. And a lot of people taking the class were just like, it was filling an elective. They didn't really care that much about it. But I was like super stoked to learn because through my years, you know, you're in school and you're learning different things. And I was like, well, math is not my thing. I can do it, but I don't really like it. And it's also getting more and more confusing with all these like cosines, weird non numbers. And I was like, I'm out. So I knew that wasn't my path. I enjoyed science a lot, but I preferred the science of people. And so when psych 101 class opened up, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to take that. And then I'll just see if I like it. Cause my mom and dad, were always great and very supportive about like being curious. Like I never had to be, uh, I never had to decide what I wanted to be or what uh, path I wanted to take. They were like, just be curious. You can just figure it out. See if you like it. I don't know. Do it. And so I took the psych 101 class and I was hooked, man. I was hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do when I apply to schools. Cause junior year, um, Actually, maybe I think it might have been my sophomore year, come to think of it, because I feel like I had that whole another year to like take my SATs and my um, ACTs and, and apply to schools. And so I was hooked and I applied to schools. And then as I started doing the work and, you know, moving into like a more intensive psychology program in undergrad, it became more and more fascinating. And I decided that I wanted to be a a child psychologist. That was my initial goal. I'm going to be a child psychologist. And then for a brief period, I was like, I want to be a psychiatrist, even cooler. And then I took like anatomy and physiology, or no, it wasn't anatomy and physiology. It wasn't A&P. It was uh, something about the brain. I even forget the name of the class, probably because I tried to block it out. It was so terrible. Um, And I was terrible at it. I had to like dissect a brain and put little flags in different portions of the brain. It was like some sheep brain. I... Nope. Hard stop. Couldn't do it. Didn't like it. Wasn't interested. Let's move on. And also did really shittily, even though I studied like a maniac. And so I was like, I don't think this is made for me. So not going to be a psychiatrist. Back to being a child psychologist. And so when I graduated um, undergrad, I uh, initially was a psych major and a music minor. And then about my sophomore year, I realized I wouldn't graduate in time with those two because music is very intensive. If you don't know, like it takes a lot of hours. Um, I know I'm telling my whole life story. Sorry if this is boring. Um, anyways, so I dropped my music minor and went through, you know, went through with the psychology thing. And then after that, I took a couple of jobs to make sure that I wanted to be a therapist because I wasn't actually sure. Um, I know that sounds silly, but you go through school and school is not real life and it is not a job and you can learn about things and be like, oh, this is very interesting to learn about. And then in practice, you're like, oh my God, it's all TPS reports and I hate this. So um, if you don't know that reference, it's uh, the movie Office Space. Anyway, it's all TPS reports and shitty things and a boss coming around trying to make it. it, I was just like, do I like doing this? And so I worked at this place in downtown LA called St. Anne's and it's a, um, it's a home, it's a a therapeutic home for pregnant and parenting teen girls, foster teen girls. So they don't have like a family of their own, um, in the traditional sense, they have like us and it's like 56 girls, I want to say. And I think we had like 23 children. It was a lot. I was exhausted, but excuse me, but I loved it and I was hooked. And so after I had that job, I took my GREs, which is like the test that you have to take to get into graduate school. And I decided to apply to uh, psychology programs and, and the graduate programs. And I wasn't quite sure which vein I wanted to go in. I looked into art therapy. There was a program at Loyola Marymount in um, LA. I looked into that. I went to Pepperdine for undergrads so, and they had an LMFT program. So I looked into theirs. I looked into a program in Boston. I want to say at Brown University because uh, part of me was like, I want to go to the East Coast. I can move again because I moved, if you guys don't know, from Washington State down to Southern California for undergrad. So I was like, for grad, I might as well move again. Oh, why not? Well, it turns out it's really expensive. And I also already had like a place here and friends here and Pepperdine really likes to keep their people. They're incestuous, some might say. And so it was actually a lot cheaper for me to stay and go to Pepperdine. Surprise, surprise, even though it's still expensive. Consider 
school costs before you get into it because that was a, a mistake I made. A lot of student loans, you guys, a lot. Anyway, and so um, went to school for it and decided, started working with children. After my first year of graduate school, they put you into like a internship program where you work, you know, with different people. I worked at a low cost slash free clinic. And my first client was a, a nine-year-old girl, lovely. Um, but immediately I knew I didn't want, want to work with kids. And I say this with the most love because I love children. I just don't love dealing with shitty parents. And I don't mean that all parents are shitty, but when you're a therapist and you're trying to work with someone, especially at a free clinic, like most of these kids were referred because their parents had uh, been through like uh, child protective services and they'd been taken away from them and they were traumatized. And part of the program was that they get in therapy or their parent had been incarcerated or their parents had been through like a really nasty divorce and the children were removed from both parents for a while, like all sorts of messy situations. And I realized that that was not the space for me. Like I didn't, it was more about me managing the parents and their expectations than actually working with the child. And I just found it so exhausting and so frustrating. Um, And I didn't know, I didn't think it was a good fit for me. And around that time, one of my friends had told me about an opening at the eating disorder treatment center. And I was like, I had a friend that I grew up with who really struggled with the eating disorder. And so I was like, I don't know if I can do that. Like I might get it's too close to home. What if there's like transference, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, just try it. It might be, I find it super rewarding. It's the best job I've had. Yada, yada, yada. I think you'd be great at it. So I interviewed and I got the job and I fell in love with that. And that's always been what I've done then since that moment. And I think the reason that I enjoy being a therapist is I, I love the growth. I love watching people change. What a cool way. I feel the so I feel so privileged to get the chance to sit alongside people and watch them as they navigate through life to be to feel better, to do better. How cool is that? And it's not always linear or clean and clear. It most of the time it's not like 99.9% of the time it's a mess. But I am I feel so excited to get to navigate that mess with them. And so I think that that's I don't know. It's just so rewarding. And I haven't gotten an email in like maybe six or eight months, but every so often I get a couple emails from my older uh, patients who I don't see anymore and just updating me about what they're doing. I even get uh, letters from my viewers telling me how they're doing. I love that stuff. That, that feeds my soul. That's, that's why I do what I do. And so, yeah, um, I like being a therapist because I get to be part of people's growth and, and positive change. And it's so cool. And everybody's different. Like, I think the thing when I was growing up, I'd have, I had a, a bunch of jobs, you guys, like, don't think that it was like, and I went to school and then I became a therapist and everything was fine. No, I was a barista for a long time. I worked at Jamba Juice. My brother used to joke that I needed to become a bartender so I could be the queen of the beverages because I'd done all these beverage jobs over the years. I gotta love my brother. He's actually pretty funny. He should have, I think in another life, he should have been a comedian. Anyway, he used to tease me about that. And so I had those jobs. And then in graduate school, I was a waitress at this breakfast lunch place called Jack and Jill's that no longer exists. May she rest. Um, and then I, uh, oh, and I worked in, uh, in undergrad, actually. I worked in the college at the, in the social sciences division. If you called, I'd, I was the one that picked up. I'd be like, hello, Pepperdine University, social science division. This is Katie. Um, so I was that person for a while. I worked in the copy center with my friend, Kim, who, who that was awesome and fun. Um, and then I was a sales rep for a while. That was a challenge, a t- totally different thing. Help pay for my wedding, pay my student loans down. Um, and that was when I was finishing gathering my hours while I was working at a hospital. You guys have had a shit ton of jobs. I was working at a treatment center, a hospital. I had a private practice one day a week. And then I started YouTube. And then I slowly had to like stop doing all the things um, because my private practice was picking up. Um, getting to go to the treatment centers and hospitals, becoming too burdensome, like traffic was terrible and I wasn't getting paid much. Um, yeah. So I always knew I wanted to be a therapist. I love, I love the job. Um, but it's definitely been like a winding road to get there. So if you're on in your own winding road towards your own career path, don't think that you're not getting there fast enough or you're not doing it the right way. Everybody has their own path to it. Um, and sometimes you got to be industrious, man. You got to take a job you don't like to pay bills. I've been there. Trust me. I've had a lot of jobs I didn't like. Um, 
but yeah, I always knew that I had a passion for people and yeah, I, that's it. Let's stop talking. Stop talking about myself On to the next thing. Okay. And I'm going to have a drink of water because I just talk too much. This is just what happens. Okay. Question number eight. And this is, how do you improve the feeling that you're stuck in your routine and the day-to-day just isn't as interesting or fulfilling anymore? And I really enjoyed this because I think a lot of us feel like this. We get stuck in a routine and we're bored. And so I think... I think the thing is, and this is not an easy answer. I know this isn't going to be easy to do. I know that I'm going to say it and you're going to be like, shit, I'm hoping she wouldn't say that. But the truth is you got to shake it up. If you're stuck in a routine, you've got to make plans to do something different. Like for instance, just the other day, um, because Sean and I's goal this year is kind of to get outdoors more, to do more of the things that we love. And I was in yoga and my teacher was talking about like making time and space for things that are fulfilling or things that you really want to do, you know, um, because life's too short. And I was thinking about it and I'm, you know, you're laying there in like Shavasana, like, and I was like, ah, I think all of a sudden it bubbled up in my brain. I was like, I want to listen to live music more. I used to do that all the time. I love live music. It's so like a breath in and I love it. The creativity. Oh, so good. And so I came out of yoga and I was like, Sean, I want to go see live music more. Um, And so I think that was me shaking up my routine because my routine, just FYI, is get up around between eight and nine, make some eggs and toast, check my email, uh, film some videos, maybe go to yoga or do a YouTube workout, uh, make dinner. Sean usually makes dinner. I'm not going to lie. He makes dinner and we watch uh, some news and reruns of The Office and we go to sleep. Boom. And then rinse, you know, repeat. And so you get stuck. And it's not fulfilling, super boring. We're all there. We get there. And also it's the winter time and it's hard to get out. So you got to just make a point to do something. And I don't know, it depends on you, but some people are better with like plans. Like you make plans with a friend and you tell them not to let you cancel, have them come to get you. You can set up things to like stop you from getting back into your, you know, routine that's sucking. Um, So that could be one way to do it. You make plans. Or if you're like me, it's actually better if I do last minute things because I can't get out of it and I'm excited in the moment and then I'm doing it. So that actually works where I'm like, oh my God, hey, my friend is singing at this bar. We got to go. And I'm good at that. Then I'm like, put on my jeans. Let's get out of the house. And I don't have any time to like, oh, later today I'm supposed to do that thing. And like, I don't really want to do it. And I'd rather just like be in my pajama. It doesn't give me any time to get out. And so I find that to be better. So think about yourself and like maybe try both. See what works. Maybe spon- like spontaneity is not your thing. Maybe it is. Um, but I, I find that keeps me from like getting back into my old rut. And so, okay, and improve the feeling that you're stuck. So I don't know how, how this person wanted me to answer, like what they're really looking for. But I think if you're wanting to just improve on the feeling that you're stuck, shaking it up will prove that you're not. But it also could be helpful if you just feel like you're stuck in the day to day. I mean, you know, I'm a huge like I'm a huge uh, supporter of journaling, and this could be a time to like journal about what being stuck means. Like, I would be curious. I would say, define the feeling stuck. How's it feel in your body? What are the thoughts that you have about being stuck? Is stuck a bad thing? Is stuck a good thing? How come you're judging your stuckness? Are there things that you could do to make yourself feel more unstuck? What would those be? I mean, that's being a therapist. You're filled with questions. I could ask you so many questions about it. And so that would be kind of like how I would dive into that. If you want to improve on that feeling and get to know your quote unquote stuckness more. Um, But I think shaking things up will be more fulfilling. Also, I think it would be, it's important for all of us. And this is something that I've been trying to do more and more, um, if you follow my YouTube channel, you know I've talked about it a little bit. Um, or on my Patreon page, I do live streams and I chat a little bit more about my own process. But over the years, I've been trying to figure out how to do more things that are fulfilling for me. Because as someone who's creating and, and giving out, like creating content and putting out energy to other people and like to help people, um, I can't pour from an empty pitcher, right? Like I have to fill myself up too so that I can keep doing what I do. And that because YouTube and 
interacting online used to just be a hobby of mine. And I was like, this is so cool. I get to talk to people like from Cyprus and the UK and Florida. This is so amazing. And I would get so excited about it. And it's not that I don't get excited about it anymore, but it's just like anything after a while, it, it, it's become a job, right? And it's like all consuming. I legitimately cannot answer all comments and questions anymore. It's just impossible. I'm only one person. And so now that that hobby has become like more of a, a career path, I have to fill that hobby hole. <laughs> That's just a funny word, the hobby hole. But I do, and I have to find new things that are fulfilling because I think the the lie that I told myself is that once you have something that is fulfilling, you always have that thing. And that's not true. We change all the time. My preferences and my, uh, the things I get excited about are always shifting. It's never, you know, cut and dried like, Oh, I enjoy going for walks. I'm going to enjoy going for walks until I'm 87. Mm -mm. I enjoyed that for maybe like a year and a half and I'm kind of over that too. So in order to have things that are fulfilling, I think we always have to mix it up. We always have to try different things. Um, and just recognizing when a certain person, situation, uh, experience is breath in for you that is fulfilling. Like for me, we went to Big Bear a few weeks ago with friends and that was really a breath in for me. I came back feeling so energized and revitalized. And so I was like, ah, oh, getting outdoors, spending time with those friends is a good thing for me. And then also like I have a couple of friends that I go to dinner with, you know, that aren't in the YouTube world and that's fulfilling for me and, and a breath in because I don't have to talk about work the whole time. Um, because we're not, unfortunately, a lot of YouTubers, and I'm sure if anybody's listening, they're like, mm -hmm. we are not the best at work-life balance. We talk about work all the time. And if we get together, we talk about each other's channels and the work that we're doing it. We can't help ourselves. It's a disease anyway. So, um, when I'm with my friends who don't do YouTube and don't do social media, we get to talk about all sorts of other things. It really forces my brain out of this rut that it's in. And so anyway, I give all of those examples and personal experience just so that hopefully that opens up a couple ideas or new things that you can try so that you're feeling more fulfilled and quote unquote out of your rut. Okay. I think we have time for one more question. Question number nine. How do you know what should be dealt with through therapy and what should be dealt with chemically? I love this question. I mean, I love all your questions. Getting a drink of water, getting prepared. Now, for those of you who maybe don't understand what this question means, they're asking what should be dealt with in therapy, meaning talk therapy with somebody and what should be dealt with when it comes to like antidepressants or what I would call... Um, psychotropic medication. That's what we call medication that's used for the brain, for our mental health. And so the best, all the research, if you want to dig down into Google Scholar and do a deep dive, I encourage you to do this. You will find that the best results come from both therapy and medication working in tandem. Oh, it's amazing. The results are amazing. People get super stoked. It's the best. However, sometimes we don't need medication. Like if our therapist gives us some tools and tips and techniques to try and we're like, cool, I got it. These are hard, but I will try and I am doing it. Then we probably don't need any medication. We don't need an antidepressant or a mood stabilizer or anything like that. We're cool. Just floating along on our own. But, um, and this is where we need medication is when we can't do the things in therapy because we don't feel well enough. Like I've talked about this a lot in my videos where let's say we're super depressed and depression is like an ocean and it just swallows us up and we can feel like we're like drifting down and like the light is getting farther and farther away. Um, man, I wish I could animate. I would animate so much for you guys. That was such a beautiful analogy. Anyway, so that's how depression can feel. So if our therapist is like, hey, I need you to synchronize swim and do these kicks. And these are the things I'm talking about those metaphorically, really meaning that your therapist is trying to get you to uh, shower twice a week and get outside for 15 minutes a day and call one friend a week. Or, you know, you have your goals and you have your maybe tools where it's like, I want you to say five things you're grateful for. I want you to spend some time meditating on that. There can be a lot of different things that a therapist will have you do. But if you're deep under the ocean and the, uh, deep in the water, you aren't able to do all those things. You can't. You're drowning. You're drowning in the symptoms. And so when we're drowning in the symptoms, that's when we need the life raft 
of medication to keep us afloat. And so that's where I differentiate when we need to be, uh, we need to have medication and when we don't need it. And only you know that you and your therapist or psychiatrist and your treatment team should kind of talk about that to figure out what's best for you. And so that that's when you need medication is when the symptoms are just too strong that you can't do the work in therapy. I do not believe I am not of the belief that we should only be on medication and we shouldn't be seeing a therapist. There may come a time where that happens. For instance, here's an example. Let's say I have bipolar one disorder, meaning that I have depressive symptoms and I'll have these like episodes of depression, but I also have mania where I go into, um, I have flights of ideas. I talk really quickly. I don't really sleep at all. And, um, I like think I'm doing all these projects and getting things moving, but I'm really um, causing chaos for those around me and myself. And then I come down from that after about a week and I can feel horrible. There's a lot of shame and guilt and embarrassment associated with the things that maybe I've done because it could be out of character. That's kind of like what bipolar one is in a nutshell. I have a whole video about it um, if you're wanting to know more. But let's say I have bipolar one disorder and I'm struggling with that. I can be... On, I should be on medication to help manage my mood swings, meaning that mania to depression. I don't like the term mood swings because people use it to be like, you're so moody. And bipolar is, is a lot more than that. However, because I have those swings and how I'm feeling from depression to mania and everything in between, I'm going to need medication to help that not happen. What I would call a mood stabilizer, like a psychiatrist would prescribe a mood stabilizer or an atypical antipsychotic Um So they might give you something like that to help hold you from the high and the low into the middle, which is where those of us without bipolar disorder live. And even if I'm in therapy to help manage all of that, like trying to figure out uh, my signs and symptoms, a lot of what I do with my bipolar patients is just what we call psychoeducation, meaning teaching them about uh, their mental illness so they can better understand it and they can learn how to track their symptoms so that we know if let's say they need to increase their medication or they need a lower or they need a different, you know, I can relay signs and symptoms to their psychiatrist so that when they have an appointment, they can assess the options. Anyway, all that to say that I might not need therapy for that long for my bipolar disorder. I might just need it to better understand it, to deal with some of the shame and embarrassment that I have associated with it or the you know, concerns with my family, maybe I go into family therapy, there could be a lot of or my uh, spouse, we could go to couples counseling, there can be a lot of different things that I could do um, in therapy. But at a certain point, I might be like, you know, I feel like I have all the tools, I know my symptoms, I'll give you a call and I feel better. And in that instance, I would need medication to help continue to keep me stabilized. And therapy might just not be as beneficial anymore. And so I think it's kind of depending on the person, but therapy and medication work best together. And I think that everyone should at least start out with some therapy so we can better understand what we're going through um, so that we can ensure, because I don't know if any of you feel this way, but psychiatrists don't always spend a lot of time with you. And it's really the therapist who relays the information to the psychiatrist to ensure that you're getting the proper treatment. I'm not a doctor and I'm not pretending to be a psychiatrist. I'm just saying that when I'm working with a patient who's also on medication, I call their psychiatrist and I leave messages every week telling them what we talked about. Obviously, you have to sign a release for this to happen, just so you know, confidentiality again. But I leave a message with the the key points in our therapy, the symptoms that I I am seeing or hearing from my patient, things they told me about the medication. Um, I check in to make sure I still have the proper doses. I tell them what our next appointment is and I let, you know, and that's it. And tell them to call me back if, you know, if I need any feedback from them. Um, And so... I think at the beginning, it's important to have both of those people in your life so that you can learn about your mental illness, you can get tools and tips and techniques to better manage it. And you can ensure that you're getting a full, a full treatment, meaning that your psychiatrist gets all the information, because I know they kind of rush us through and we can get scared and or forget to ask certain questions. And then having a therapist on board can kind of help with that. So that's really important. But then you might only need a you know, the medication later, or on the flip side, you might only need therapy later. Let's say I was going through a depressive episode, um, following just a really difficult time in my life. And after about a year or two on the medication, I titrate down with my uh, psychiatrist helping me. And then I just continue in therapy because the medication actually isn't needed anymore. I'm able to do the tools and things that my therapist is offering. 
I hope that makes sense. I know that's a lot and I'm, I'm like talking quickly, but there's a place for both. And I think, um, they work best together. However, I do not believe either has to continue all the time. I think it's all about how we're feeling. If we're able to do the things that our therapist is asking, then therapy might be enough. If we're not, we might need medication. If we've already worked everything out in therapy and our medication is just needed to maintain where we're at, then we might just need medication. And I think that's kind of the role. But asking questions, that's important. You are the one that can be the best advocate for your own mental health and your own mental health care. So write some questions down that you have for your therapist or your psychiatrist. What symptoms are you experiencing? What are your goals? What things are you worried about? Ask about the side effects. Ask about the cost. Ask about it. It's okay. That's We're there to answer your questions. There's a reason we go to school and we do all the things we do is because we want to help people. So come prepared with all of your questions. You know, you can just read it straight off your phone, put it in your notes and like read it from it when you go in for your appointment um, just to make sure that you are getting the care that you need and deserve. I hope you like this podcast. This is kind of fun. It's totally different. I'm going to have to get used to it. Like not having chat, not being able to like say out names and how are you and blah, blah, blah. No checking in like that. It's like, I just talk and then you listen and then you give me more questions or my feet, more feedback. And we go from there, but this is kind of fun. Let me know what you think in those comments down below. Um, yeah, and I'll keep asking you for questions all over social. So follow me on social media. My name is Katie Morton, K-A-T-I-M-O-R-T-O-N. I have Instagram, Twitter, YouTube community tab. We got all the things. I'm even on like Tumblr and Pinterest, although Pinterest, I don't really understand like how I would ask questions. You get the gist. Okay, I'll see you next week. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all.